Welcome to Changeable. This is episode number 172, Less is Unbelievably More in Parenting with Jenny Roberts. You're tuned in to Changeable with Dr. Amy Johnson. Changeable podcast is all about breaking habits, ending anxiety, and the ironic way change really works. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey there, welcome back to Changeable. I can't wait to hear what people think of this episode. I think um, Jenny is fascinating. <laughs> Her approach to working with parents, She Jenny lives in Australia. She's retired in a sense now, um, but spent a career working with parents who felt at the end of the rope completely helpless and hopeless around children, sometimes who weren't sleeping, some oftentimes who were just acting out, had various behavioral issues. Um, she worked with a lot of parents uh, with children who were somewhere on the autism spectrum, ADHD, things like that. And you'll hear in this conversation the way that she works with these parents, and I'm doing air quotes right now that you can't see, um, really isn't work. <laughs> it really isn't doing anything but helping the parents relax and back off. Now, this is my summary. I'm not sure she would say it exactly that way, although I think she would. I think she does throughout this episode that when a child has an issue like this, when a child appears to be acting out or so many of these things, what's really going on is that the parents are nagging, worried, anxious, trying to control, basically doing too much getting in the way, interfering too much. And that when she could go in and sometimes just over a very short period of time, help the parents relax and just back off and let the child calm themselves, let the child figure things out on their own. Remarkable, remarkable change would happen in these children. And it's so funny talking with Jenny and and now, you know, thinking back to our conversation, how, um, kind of extreme this is in a sense and how big it is, but at the same time, it makes absolute perfect sense. And it's not really extreme at all. It's what every episode of Changeable is about. We, we're lived by something bigger. Like we don't need so much interference, you know, and that goes for all of us, no matter how we're acting, what we're up against, how old we are. And of course, it's so well-meaning that we as parents kind of think that our job in a sense is to guide our children. And when they start doing something that our mind says is is not the way it should be, we step in more. Of course we do. And that makes it worse. So I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation with Jenny. It's really fascinating. And I, I hope to get a lot of emails after this one. I'd love to hear what you think. She, we talk about it in the episode, but she's basically like the dog whisperer, Caesar Milan, but for parents. She's the parent whisperer. So enjoy this conversation with Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for coming on Changeable. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> it's lovely to be here. Yeah, I'm excited about our conversation. Um, I know we've spoken a little bit about the work that you've done for years and years. And and actually, and I have, didn't tell you this, but just recently, um, some of the coaches who I work with uh, 
had you were on my radar already and we were talking about doing some stuff together and then I just heard your name in a couple other places and somebody said maybe you should have Jenny on your podcast and so you're kind of all over the place so it's like this perfect storm coming together and I'm I'm really excited to to um yeah to share this because I know when we spoke um I don't know. I don't want to give too much away, but I was very intrigued by the work that you've done. So, so maybe if you could just start by telling people a little bit, I guess, like if you had to, to kind of sum up your career, like how do you describe what it is that you do with uh, parents and children? And yeah, like how do you talk about the work that you've done? Uh, well, if you directly ask the parent, they would say, Jenny saved my life. <laughs> which is a big thing to take on yeah. <laughs> because in the very beginning I didn't actually understand truly what it was all about. All I knew was that I was uncomfortable with what I was doing as a therapist. Like it didn't work for me. So um, I was lucky enough to experience something, uh, you know, as I've probably told you, that I was lucky enough to experience the three principles with um, way back in 1990, and um, it just pointed me in a different direction. So I chose that if anyone was to change, it needed to be me. Um, and when I changed, everything else changed. It was that simple, really. Hmm. So, so you were working as a therapist before 1990 and feeling like it just wasn't, it wasn't it. Yeah. So basically, um, parents came with the same problem all the time and they, they cried when they arrived, they cried when they left, they kept, you know, they were still struggling regardless, or they keep coming back with the same real problem. Um, and I just, I just didn't feel comfortable with it. So, I there must be a simpler way. That's that's sort of the way I worked. And it was interesting because as a child and a teenager, I had worked with horses, and there'd been a big shift between uh, the training a horse to trusting a horse. And I think that that also became a bit of a background to help me too, which was good. I realised that you could just quieten yourself and trust that the uh, in the relationship the other party actually had the answer and that you didn't have to do too much. So that definitely helped me start um, evolving my process. Yeah. So um, I love that distinction, training versus trusting. It feels very... Yeah inside out versus outside in or just very, you know, heart centered versus head centered. I love that. So, um, so what were parents coming to you for both as a therapist and then later, what were some of the issues that what was making them cry? <laughs> they just felt hope, uh, helpless. You know, they didn't know how to manage their child. And all the parents were beautiful parents. So we're not talking about dysfunctional parents as such. They were just everyday parents like you and me who'd somehow had a child that wasn't doing what, you know, their friend's child was doing mm -hmm. and they just were so um, uh, lost at how to, you know, get an answer really. You know, they, they Googled, they, they searched, they went to paediatricians, they went to 
doctors, they went to naturopaths, they went to all these different people and they still were so, you know, um, affected by this child. You know, they, they weren't at peace really. So things like their children weren't sleeping well or eating well or talking, developing the way that other kids were, was it that kind of stuff? Well, I think I wouldn't say that they really were aware of the sleeping thing because often I would rem- I would say to them, so does your child sleep? And she said, no, no one's ever asked me that question. They mainly came because of their child's behaviour. Okay. Okay, so yeah, yeah. so in other words, it was out of control, or yeah. uh, they didn't do what. Uh, often, when they went places, they couldn't function. So when they left, they might have been able to manage what ha- was happening in the home, but mm-hmm. as soon as they walked out the door, they struggled. Yeah, and so how how did how did you know to help them? What did you know to do as a therapist? And then how did that evolve as you kind of came in, as you came to see things a different way? That's a big question. Well, I can remember, yeah, no, that's fine. I can remember consciously deciding that I was going to do something different the next time a child came to see me. So I had a big therapy room with lots of fun things. So the parent came and she sat down near me and I just allowed the child to play. I didn't do anything more than that. Uh, and at the end of the session, I said to the child, did you have fun? And they said, yeah. I said, would you like to come back to next week? And she, they said, absolutely. So I said to the parent, looks like you'll be coming back. So when they came back the next week, I said to the mother, how was it? How was the week? She said, fantastic. And I said, great. And Really, all I had done is created some space in that child's mind that everything was okay because its mother had been taking it from one therapist to the next and all I allowed it was some freedom to just be a child. Yeah. And so, so that's really how it started. Yeah. And, and that would carry over that when the parent would take them home and you were no longer around, just that little bit of space would... would well, in the beginning, they, you know, uh, initially... That's all that happened. Then the parents said, look, there must be a bit more to it. Can you explain? Like, you could, can you show me what to do? Can, I, can you come to my house, you know, because I've got other issues? So that's really, then I really just showed them that all I had done was sit back. In other words, take my dialogue away from them um, so much and soften my eyes. So in other words, not be so directive. Don't try and judge them at the level that they were. Um, And then it just evolved from that and I started to work in people's homes. So for 25 years I travelled to families all over Australia and New Zealand, Uh, even went to America actually, (laughs) mainly Australians but went to America uh, to live. And um, I just, again, showed them how to get started with evolving change within their home. And what were... Like, how would you say you would get started with that? What were some of the things you would teach the parents? Because it sounds like really you were educating, if you were doing any educating, or it was more with the parent than with the child. Is that right? Oh, yeah. It was all, all to do, just like I was the first 
person that needed to change in my relationship. Uh, I was the beginning of the uh, inside-out process. They had to be the the beginning of their process. So um, usually what I say to people is, um, well, I don't say, they tend to tell me all the things that they've been trying. (laughs) In other words, I did this and I did this and, you know, that didn't work and that didn't work. And I try to explain to them that uh, we... It's a very practical process. In other words, we both have a left and a right hand. And your left hand is all the things that you say and do to fix, try and solve the problem. Um, And I'm going to show you how to do a right hand. So the right hand is more about sitting back, waiting. So so that's basically all we we do to get started, really. It's not not cotton, it's a very simple process. And then we just watch. And so like if we play this out, like say you're with a child who's acting out, you're with the parents and you're at their home and and the the parent is typically very reactive and jumping in and correcting and that just makes things worse. And so you're talking about, okay, that's your left hand, but let's look in this right hand and let's... um, just kind of making this up, but you know, let's, let's wait. And you're in that space of watching and the child acts out in that space. Like then what? Well, I always start the parents off mechanically. So what I say to the parents is you're going to use your left hand until you choose to stop using your left hand. So um, you might say something, but there's a point where you go, this, I, I, this happened yesterday, it happened last week, so I'm going to try my right hand. So what all I say to them is the moment you feel that that situation is happening, you just basically go and sit down. Just stop everything and just wait. So what you're waiting for is for the child to notice you and come to you. Because typically behaviour is all about the child producing a behaviour which actually creates a, a need for the parent to join join that behaviour to try and fix it. So until the child, uh, till a parent does something different, that you can't change that behaviour. So uh, a lot of people um, have been coached to use more left hand, so say this a particular way, whereas all I'm saying is, uh, take a step back, sit down, relax, and do nothing and wait till the child to come to you. Yeah. Now, sometimes that takes a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going <laughs> to ask. And, and to be honest, like I can see why you would do this in the home rather than like out at a restaurant. Because, <laughs> you know, if your child's being crazy out in public, like you, it's hard, it's even harder to sit and wait, right? So is that is that kind of the idea is to do it in a natural environment where you can help where it makes it as easy as possible for the parent to sit and wait? Well, obviously I I show people that you you've got to you've got to trust your right hand. So you have to learn to disengage your left hand. So it's much better to do it in your own four walls, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> much easier. So when I go to the parent, I basically um, uh, do it for three days. Okay. So we start in the morning, basically. Yeah. And so how was that for parents who were used to jumping in with so many interventions to, I can huge re- so hard. <laughs> huge relief. 
Yeah. Oh. They thought that to parent their difficult child, they needed to use their left hand. They they just there was a there's a huge belief system that talking uh, will solve or communication, which often is just talking, um, that people think that. They're just using the wrong words or they haven't said it hard enough or direct enough. But in actual fact, you're going in the wrong direction. You have to create the space because the child actually knows what to do. They're they're producing that behaviour because they're they're completely overloaded. So I love that. Okay, so the child knows what to do and that that's where our mind as parents doesn't we don't see that until we see that. It looks like we need to intervene and clearly they don't know what to do because they're not doing it. But you're saying, no, they know what to do. They're, they're just, how would you say it? Like they're just acting out. They're just like, what is the child doing? What's the child behind they, their behavior? They're imbalanced, basically. They feel uncomfortable. They're not coping. So if you go right back to when a baby cries, uh, when they're little, you know, the parent picks them up and cuddles them, don't they, to make them feel better. But unfortunately, that becomes a loop. And the, and really, parents have been conditioning their children to need them. You know, they are attracting them. They're teaching their brains that when you feel uncomfortable, I will be here to fix it. So, it's fine when you've got a tiny little baby and you want to cuddle it. But unfortunately, uh, parents get uncomfortable with being um, the other part of the loop when they don't want to be. Yeah. So the, the children have learned this from a very young age. So the child starts to see, okay, I can feel imbalanced. I can act out as, as I do when I feel imbalanced. But that, like I'm, you tell me if this is accurate, but... But the child, when the parent doesn't step in to do anything, they just sit back and wait. Is it that the child then starts to see, okay, nothing's happening, and they they get to see themselves rebalance? Well, it's a whole range, really. Some of them are so relieved that they uh, that they've got the space. I can remember one mother coming; she was referred to me by another. Um, a uh, person that I helped, and she knew that this mother was a talker. And when she came, I, I think she only came once, and I said to her, why don't you just not say anything, like do a, do what I've been sh- sharing? Mm-hmm. And um, she came back the next week, or she rang me up, she said, I can't believe the change. He's just, mm-hmm. he's just done everything that I told him. I said, well, you had already trained him to do that. Like, he's, you know, he's capable they just uh, shut down when they keep hearing talking, talking, the same same request over and over, nagging, really. That's mm-hmm. what it is. Yeah. And so because the child's nature is to settle on its own and to, like, it, it has a, the child has its uh, its healthy default, is that is that why, I mean, no intervention, no talking is needed? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, they 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 don't even know what's going on for themselves. They're just so um, codependent. They they're so managed by the parent in all different ways. They they've forgotten who they are, really. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so I love, I love the, what you're saying that it's like, again, I can hear people thinking, oh, well, we need to teach them who they are and we need to show them, but that's, that's back to left hand. Yeah. <laughs> like we yeah. don't need to show exactly. them anything. They know yeah. who and what they are. We just need to get exactly. them out of the way and it's going to, yeah. it will rebalance. Well, you know, people, parents are wanting a loving, caring relationship. But what happens is when they manage and dialogue continually at their child, trying to get them, direct them, they're actually, you know, forcing the child away from what they truly want. Now, when when you, um, I remember uh, a family that I helped and it, uh, the boy was 11 and uh, he had been diagnosed as Asperger's and his mother was an anthropologist, I think. And uh, anyway, when I left, he came over to me and he hugged me and he said, oh, Jenny, I would ne- thank you. You've saved my life. Uh, I would never have been able to shut my mother up, you know. <laughs> At that point, he says, I'm free. Like, now, whether it was because he got it that he didn't need to leave, you know, there was a choice for him now, or whether he could actually tr- truly see that I had educated his mother that she didn't need to do what she, I don't know, but it didn't matter. He, 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 um, the next day went to school and actually told them that he wasn't Asperger's anymore. He was just a normal, everyday child. <laughs> I had to laugh, really. Wow. Wow. I love that. Yeah. So, um, oh gosh. Okay. So I want to keep asking those questions, but just I want to go back to something really quick. So you mentioned like how we innocently kind of condition babies to to think that when they're not feeling well, they need something or something's going to come to the rescue. So how do you, knowing what you know now, how do you suggest people are with babies? Like, would you suggest change that early on? Or is it more of like, yeah, we still can't, we still hold our babies when they cry, but at some point we start to back off or how does that, does that make sense? Well, it's interesting. My 40 year 40-year-old first child has just had a baby, mm. <laughs> her third baby. So, and she's asked me for help. Um, look, it is all about understanding. People don't understand how closely related food is to sleep. And it's a big trigger. Parents want to comfort their children by feeding them all the time. And they don't understand that there is a need for the child to, uh, for sleep rather than food. And they overload the, the whole system. And then there's a codependence to doing, uh, needing the parents to, uh, comfort the child through the eating, etc. So I, uh, I show parents that there's lots of ways of centering a baby. You don't have to feed them. So when they're crying, it could be just a case of holding, sitting them on your lap and just being with them for a little while and then putting them down and allowing them to have a shift in their mind rather than focus always on, I need to be fed. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, um, so I mean, is this, kind of related I feel like this is a bad question but like like if a baby's crying is it around is it like kind of helping them see that we're not going to run to their rescue every time or or do you or is it not even is that too rule-based is it more like when the parent 
understands that the baby is is ultimately fine and doesn't need so much of anything. Yeah, look, that makes sense. Look, the moment crying is a way of survival. So when a baby cries, they're wanting wanting something. At, you know, when they're new, you know, obviously they need comfort, they need feed. Something's wrong, but everything's a learnt behaviour. So all I'm suggesting is that um, less is more. Uh, you can holding children, babies continually rather than just supporting them for a while and then putting them down to allow them to self-regulate to the next point. Uh, I teach parents to have no play. So in other words, when they're on the ground or when they're in the play situation and they cry, you don't constantly give them toys. You actually let them work out that they need to do the next thing because often crying is the evolution of the next behaviour so that they cry or they create some sort of um, discomfort to be able to roll over or to move to the next point. So if you're continually picking them up, their development gets becomes delayed. Mm. I remember a baby, a mother coming to me who had been told that her baby was going to die. She had cancer and probably would die for five months. So naturally, she breastfed it. It was in her bed all the time because she knew the baby was going to die. Well, the baby didn't die. And she came to me when the baby was 18 months and she was still breastfeeding. Um, she was The ba- baby was totally, um, couldn't do anything. Uh, developmentally was delayed. So I, I went through the baby process with her and we weaned the baby and I showed her how the baby actually had the answer. And Yes, the baby was still sick, but it still was ha- became happy because she actually allowed it to be uh, where it was at that point. So it's just knowing that um, you have to give them space to be themselves, whatever they present as. It doesn't matter whether they've got a disability, difficulty. They need space to to process that. I mean, this is so simple. And we know it's true because we know of what's true of people, you know, that they do have everything they need and they do know the answer. Oh, and yet I just think of young parents and myself too, where like, man, it just feels hard. It's just crazy. It's just this conversation is just bringing up how much we are conditioned, like you said, to intervene and do and research and know the right things and all of that when it's, when in truth, oh, it's so much simpler than all of that. Oh, definitely far simpler. Yeah. I had a um, mother um, contact me in the middle of the night, obviously through the internet, and she had a little seven-month-old baby just crying and I think she was lying on the floor in the in the bathroom, uh, like really distressed. And uh, uh, she said, oh, I think my child's got all these problems. I said, well, I'll come and help you show you how to uh, organise the sleep. So that's all I did is I went and went to her house and just showed her how to, I call it bouncing the child, the baby to bed. So there's, it's a process. So with my process, it's all about you first. So in other words, if you hear the baby crying, it's about you sitting and just breathing and being calm by, for yourself. Now, I suggest you do that for 10 seconds. And if you can go a bit longer than 10 seconds, then that's good. So in other words, it's really about saying, 
I can't pick the baby up unless I'm calm. So 10 seconds is nothing. We've got five fingers on each hand. So just look at the, you know, people get desperate, I used to say, just touch every finger and then when you get to the end, then you can pick the baby up. You only need to give yourself a little bit of confidence to get to the next point. Now, other people could wait up to two minutes. So often I say, if you can wait two minutes, and when I used to go to families, the husbands used to put their timer on their mobile phone. Right, they're not, we're just going to sit here and breathe through the crying for two minutes. Then we can use our left hand, what we were doing. And, you know, just giving yourself permission to allow the baby just to grizzle a little bit actually helps the next time they grizzle. Wow. You know, but you've got to get started. Yeah. No one knows how to get started. So that's what the process is all about, showing you that you, you uh, to use your right hand, you actually have to commit to realise that the problem is your problem first, not the baby's, and just create a little bit of space. And then the next, after the two minutes, then you can go and pick the baby up. But you're not picking the baby up to feed. You're just picking the baby up and sitting with the baby for a couple of minutes to do nothing. In other words, not fussing over, just be with the baby so the baby can self-regulate and calm themselves down. So you're not actually teaching the, the, the baby to look outside themselves for a thing like an object, a toy, a a bottle of milk or anything, you're just actually being with them. And then after that couple of minutes, then you can put the baby back on the ground and see whether they're okay before you go on to the next point. So it's all about what the way I teach people is it's all about you first, then the relationship with the baby, then the environment to allow the next thing to happen rather than when a baby cries, it needs food. Yeah. 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 So, so a big piece of this is like you've been saying is, is helping the baby, just, just giving the baby space because they can self-regulate and they know what they need is a big piece of the, what you just mentioned. Also the you first part and the taking the time. Is there something in there and just tell me if it's not, but this is kind of what I'm wondering um, around the parent being in a different energy when they do go to the baby. So rather than this frantic, like, oh, no, you need me kind of energy, the parent now is in a calm energy. Yeah, the babies pick up on everything. And this comes from when I was talking about originally with horses, it's all about your energy uh, and uh, waiting for that horse to come to you versus running around trying to train them to be, uh, you know, be in the paddock at a certain point it's the same thing that calmness um it's sort of your default positions you don't you think you have to do all these things but in actual fact you don't and it's just so much easier like you go into a family uh like i was talking to my daughter and i said sounds like you're getting a bit too busy about all this and she says i'll just remind me what i have to do (laughs) and so you know i said you just need to um slow everything down and give 
breathe through the whole process. Now, recently she had to get a babysitter and it was quite interesting that the baby picked up on the anxiety of the young babysitter. So then my daughter had to say to the babysitter the next time, oh, by the way, I'm going to show you how to put the baby to bed. And so she said, you put the baby on the ground and then you get a book and you just sit there for a while and read your book. Don't do anything else. <laughs> and then when the baby works for that price, then you can put it to bed. And after that, it's that simple rather than fussing over it. Uh, and then she just put the baby to bed and it all went to sleep. So I think uh, there's always a mechanical way of showing you how to swap hands to get you started and that's really what I do is I just get people started and then they then they get over that little um, uh, problematic because people want a little bit of direction that's what I find uh, is it and as soon as they do that they just know that it doesn't matter they can use their left hand and put the dummy in or give the child a toy but let's start with the right hand because it's so much easier. It's funny, I, I, the whole time, and I think when I spoke with you before too, I kept thinking about Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with yes. him. Yeah. <laughs> He's a yeah. huge hit in our house because we have two new dogs and my daughter is really okay. into training the dogs. And yet my daughter is very into training the dogs, but her energy is like all over the place. And the dogs yeah. are her babies and yet she's super like, like she'll come in the door and like want the dogs to jump all over her and kiss her and like lick her face. But then, then they don't listen to her as the pack leader. So anyway, we're all over Caesar Milan, but that's his whole thing, which is just fascinating is that he'll go in. It's like, he's the dog version of you, Jenny. He'll go into these yeah. homes and the, the families are like so worried and they're in their heads and all these problems. And he just goes and he holds the leash really loose and it's just around that dog. And the dogs just like, these aggressive dogs just like lay down and roll over in front of them. And it's crazy to watch on TV. We're like, oh my gosh. But that's what he always says. He always says it's the owner problem. It's a human problem, not a yeah. dog problem. Yeah. And he's just helping them kind of tap into this. It's not even confidence, but just tap into to what's there, you know, beyond all their frantic thinking. And to see that, just like you're saying, the dog, the dog's a healthy dog. The dog's just doing what they're doing as a natural response to their environment. And that's exactly what you're saying about these babies, right? They're just, in children, they're just doing what feels to them like a natural response to their environment. So when their environment changes, their responses get to change. Absolutely. And lots of families that I go to, the second question they say after I arrive and the dogs are barking outside, do you do dogs as well? <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure you can. And then, uh, and then after the five days and I've calmed everyone down, guess what? The dog is quiet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. It's so funny. It is, it is quite, quite interesting. But, like, it just shows you that we're all connected. Yeah. We're just all so connected. And, um, yeah. I love that. So, um, so is it? What's it like with an older child? Is it when there's more of that learning there and learning how the parents are, does it tend to take longer? Does it not really matter as opposed to with a baby? Well, the, 
the important thing I think to focus is on the parents. It's the parents that get it quick, quickly. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter about the change of the child because that's going to evolve as it evolves. So the focus is really on the parent creating the, uh, you know, the blobby space, you know, the, the space where they just get it that they don't have to do anything. Yeah. You it's know. funny because it- you've got to remember that, um, that a lot of these, these children, you, you never know until you know uh, really about what's happened before, um, like the con- the conditioning around the you know the parents and the children. Some parents have lost babies. Some people have lost parents. All different sort of traumatic experiences, which obviously has created lots of uh, inbuilt uh, attachment and grief and all that sort of thing. So, it, I find that. It's a, it's a life changing switch for the parents. So, uh, and the and the children just feel the relief of from that. How they manage their own um, processing about it is really up to them, and it just differs with every child, really. But often, the more severe the child's stuck, the quicker they change. Hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. And it's yeah. counterintuitive in a sense, but, but it is, the way that yeah. we're talking about it, it makes sense, right? Because there's just more yeah. of that imbalance there. So it's like just a little bit of backing off and a little bit of letting that restore. I can see how that would start to change things yeah. very quickly. I remember going to this family where um, the child had gone through high school and he'd, he'd He's a very smart cookie and uh, he'd won a scholarship to a university. But once high school finished, he couldn't leave the house. And they tried lots of things for about four years and then I'm not sure how they found me, but they found me. And I went and spent five days with them. I never saw the child because he was 21. He stayed in his bedroom. He never ate with the family. Uh, he only ate uh, really weird food. Uh, he never showered himself He because he was a uh, tactile defensive to do with water, so the parent was still showering him once a week. Uh, he'd never been to that hairdresser or uh, had long hair, never been to the dentist, only went to a doctor if an ambulance arrived, all these things. And um, three months, I think, it took after I left uh, and he came up to his parents and said, do you think I'm stupid? And the parents said, no. And then he just shifted. Everything changed. <laughs> now, why does that happen? I don't know. He just thought he was the third child of the family. Um, he was on the spectrum, but he was, you know, very smart and capable. But he just had his mother involved in his loop. Um, and as soon as I showed her that she didn't need to be there, he just changed. Wow. I'm thinking of how, again, all this conditioning and how, how I would imagine some parents would feel like it's, and this is way too strong a word, but it's almost neglect or like, like it's their responsibility or it's the way they show love to step in and guide so much. Yeah. Especially if, um, again, if there's been a situation and often, especially with the, with the children on the spectrum, um, 
there usually has been some sort of trauma uh, underlying either when they've been born or just before they've been born or just uh, like around their early years, which has influenced the parents in the way that they manage them. When some little thing happens and then it just grows from there. Yeah. That's so, you mentioned that before and that's so fascinating to me. Is that, um, is that documented? Like I know that's your, what you've observed. Do you know if there's research on that, if we know that that's a statistic in a bigger way? I'm not sure. Um, I, I know that uh, there's, I mean, in 30 years I've seen lots of families and I suppose my own research uh, is that every single family that uh, has a child on the spectrum often tells a story of trauma, uh, of loss, of, of um you know, a parent um, dying or, and it's just over, being overwhelmed with grief, really. Uh, I went to a family um, a couple of years ago where the mother had witnessed uh, her grandfather, she went to visit and he had committed suicide and she found him. Then she subsequently had two children on the spectrum, um, uh, or how old were they, like, a few years later, I saw them when they were six and eight, or was it four and six? Um, and she, you know, when those children came home from school, she instantly took them to the bathroom and scrubbed them all over. And she just, they, they didn't know how to go to sleep and they had toileting issues. They, they, every part of the, the um, base, all the levels of basic needs were just all messed up completely. And as soon as I gave her permission that she didn't need to do any of those things, she connected that up to her trauma. You know, I'm doing this because I said, well, until that changes, nothing's going to change with your child really. Yeah. And she had to see it. She had to gain her own insight about that really because she said that all her family had said to her that's, you know, that had caused this to happen. Now, whether it did or whether it didn't, uh, it was obvious that she was uncomfortable and the children were definitely uncomfortable and definitely weren't coping. Yeah. Why would it show up? Do you have any ideas of why that trauma would show up as being on the spectrum as opposed to other things, as opposed to people with trauma having children who are highly anxious or depressed or, you know, have some other issue? I don't know. Um, all I know is that I tend to, you know, the spectrum now is getting wider and wider and wider. And I think uh, years ago when I first started as a therapist, you know, all those things, all those children wouldn't have been even on the spectrum. You know, it's got wider and wider. So I think that um, I think the focus is that parents aren't coping with their children. I think that's what it's all about. I think it's about the parents' anxiety around, in other words, it's their conditioning, it's their inability to cope and see that, um, you know, they're still struggling with thinking about what's happened to them. They, they don't know how to free themselves to create just lighthearted, uh, you know, they've forgotten that, that 
they, they, don't, they don't understand. There's a total misunderstanding about, you know, how they're working as a human. They're very stuck in that. Like, you know, you and I have been as well. And until you see it, you know, until you see it, you don't know. Yeah. How can you know? Exactly. Because you know, you're thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. H- have you done this kind of work in a preventative way, like with mothers who are expecting or people before they have? Oh, that, I, I love that idea. I've had um, a few mothers that I've helped and then they've rung me up and said, my sister's having a baby. Will you help them? I said, yeah, sure. So obviously I get a ring from the sister and um, – they say to me, I'm having a baby. I said, oh, okay. Um, can I do the program? I said, well, when are you having the baby? Oh, in six months? I said, no, 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 you have to have the baby first. <laughs> I said, you have to actually have the baby. You could be fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah. So, so they think that, you know, everything's a magic pill, but in actual fact, the reality is you've got everything you need. It's just you know, when you struggle that you don't understand. And when I've gone and, hope, you know, shown them, I think the youngest baby was 25 days old. And, you know, it's so simple, really. But a lot of the families that have had difficult children, then I showed them, like, then they have a baby after, after I've helped them. Mm-hmm. It's just totally different. Yeah. Yeah, they're just so aware of how they just bombarded their child. You know, they didn't give them any space. And it's cool to see how that happens naturally, to to a lesser degree, perhaps. But you know, I I think that's probably sort of a universe. It's a it's a stereotype anyway that first time parents are very anxious and very oh, helicoptery. Yeah, yeah. And then by the time you're on your yeah. second or third, you're too busy to even be a helicopter parent. <laughs> so those children just, yeah. it just tends to be easier. I mean, that's a huge stereotype, but it's really speaking to, uh, you know, what you're saying, I think. Yeah. But did, did you realize that 85% of all children on the spectrum are first children? Oh, are they really? Wow. And boys? Yeah. Huh. You know, so we have a mothers like to talk, women like to talk, boys traditionally don't like to be nagged. Um, so you've got that factor, you've got there's lots of factors in the, in the whole uh, premise. I've got another daughter that's a mathematician, and her husband is an engineer. And she said, Oh, mum, if we have babies, we'll probably tr- have them on the spectrum. I go, Oh, for heaven's sakes. I said, I'm here to help you. <laughs> and uh, they've got children that sleep, they're fine. You know, she just knows how to create the space. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. In other words, less talking. It's so simple. More curiosity, more let them work it out. I I really love what you're saying about that that even to think about prevention is like you were jumping way ahead. Like like maybe you'll be fine. Like maybe you won't exactly. overthink everything, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Wow. Or that you're allowed to. You know, initially you're allowed to go through that process yeah. until you realize that it's not working for you and it's as simple as slowing things down, you know, to slow things down. In other words, you don't need any more. You need less. So what are you going to take away? No? It's interesting, like, when you talk about it being such a relief for parents 
Um, oh yeah. But I guess, um, I don't know. I guess it's just something you got used to. Like if you can, not that you can really quantify it, but did you also have a lot of parents though, who, who did get a little defensive about it or who thought this is never going to work. They're going to get worse or who just were so impatient. They couldn't even hang out long enough to kind of hear what you were pointing toward. A lot of people used to be, uh, be taken back at how calm I was. Yeah. And also how the children worked it out. Uh, I remember one family, the children just went and self-regulated and and she said, um, but they never play together. How come they're playing together when you're here? And we were just doing nothing. Like, you know, parents, often parents that are really stuck actually are so used to their part in the whole process. They think it's their job and they want it to be their job. But often because of their own problem in their conditioning as a child themselves, you know, there's been some sort of um, experience that they felt that they weren't parented properly, so they're going to over-parent. Sometimes they're just um, very much, um, it's so different. You know, they've been living in the stress and they're actually a little bit addicted to the stress, uh, as in they, they need it for themselves. Um, and it does take them a little while to get their head around that. Um, the majority of families are just so, well, you know, it's about self-care for them. They've given up their life often for their child and they forget that they've forgotten about themselves really. So it's a, a bit of a balancing act. Jenny, thank you so much for sharing your stories. And just, I, I just, I'm um, so excited for people to hear this. I think it's another example and a really big one for, for like an, another illustration of how we do know the answers. We do have what we need and our minds just overcomplicate things. And <laughs> it's just so amazing to hear that that's been the crux of your work and how successful your work has been. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for inviting me. If you want to help people end habits or find freedom from anxiety or needless worry, I can teach you how in the Change Coach Training and Certification Program. In the Change Coach Training Program, you'll spend six months immersing deeply in this understanding with me and with an incredible group of people that will quickly become like family. You get to observe and debrief a ton of coaching sessions before doing a lot of coaching yourself with support and feedback the whole way through. You'll leave the program feeling confident and ready to work with others and with the option of becoming a certified change coach. This program is unlike any other in terms of the personal feedback, guidance, and support you receive. You can check out all the details at dramyjohnson.com slash coach training. And on Monday, November 8th, I'll be hosting a webinar where you can hear all about the change coach training program from me and from a panel of graduates. You can register for the free webinar at dramyjohnson.com slash changecoachwebinar2022. And I'll put that link in the show notes.